Well, the title of my sermon this morning is The End is Near. The end is near, meaning the world is going to end very, very soon. And you know how I know that the world is going to end very, very soon? I'm going to make my case to you as a lawyer makes his case uh, with, with some exhibits. And so exhibit A to why the world is going to end very, very soon is this. Because this exists in the world that there is ramen flavor Oreos. You know the world is ending any day now. Like, goodness gracious, why did we even try this? Ooh, like Jesus is looking down on this and saying, nope, all right, we're done. <laughs> we had a good run. Uh, but if that is fine by you for some reason, uh, the second image is another food product that will tell you it's the end of the world. We got pumpkin spice spam. Now, I'm a big fan of the pumpkin spice flavor and, and theme that we're in now. This is my favorite time of year, but this is this is too far. Like, this is, the, this is the end of the world. This is our sign that we've done and messed up, and, and, and we're done. We, we, we had a good run. Um, but here's how my, my exhibit C that God is going to use to, to wipe us out. Um, it is, uh, you've seen these videos of these AI robots that just move so effortlessly that can have such agility that are doing, like, parkour. <laughs> It is scary that this exists, that we're encouraging this to exist, because Skynet is going to take over, and we're all going to die. Um, so, um, you ever hear someone say, quit your crying, it's not the end of the world? I want to say you now have permission to cry. It's the end of the world. This is the title of my sermon, The End is Near, and uh, the three angles we're going to look at it is the urgency, the end, and the near. The urgency, the end, the near. Um, if this is your first Sunday here, it's usually not this gloomy, um, but welcome. Not only are you here for the end of the world, but more importantly, you're here for the end of the book of Isaiah. Right? This is something that we've been in for almost a year now. I think a year, actually. And so we only have two chapters left today and next week, and we are done. And that is, whew, the end is near uh, of the book of Isaiah. And I'm just curious, what have you learned in one year in the book of Isaiah? You don't have to shout out an answer, but I want you to kind of self-reflect. What is it something that you've taken away from this? This is a lot. It's a huge book. What have we taken away? And I, and I would say one theme that I think is woven all throughout the book of Isaiah that you could see kind of traced throughout there is the theme of justice, this, the theme that God is going to, to make things right, to do right. Um, and you'll see a little bit of that in today's sermon. Um, but what about you? Did, maybe you're like, I've been in it for a year, but I'm not really sure I, I'm taking anything away. Well, you're in good company. That seems to be where Israel is at. Israel is in the, the spot of, okay, you just went into exile, well, which is, you know, they, they've been kidnapped and brought in, into this foreign nation. They've been made prisoners and slaves for 70 years. And so for a little context, they've just been miraculously delivered from that. So they are now free from this exile, free from this slavery, 
and you think, you, God might ask the question, so what have you learned in this process? And it seems like Israel's like, I didn't really learn much. Because what they said before the exile and what they say after the exile seems eerily the same. And their, their question is, where are you, O oh God? And God just delivered them. Like, are you asleep? And, and God's response is, nope. We're not having this conversation like that. <laughs> God is saying, this is, we're, we're done with this nonsense. Are you in or are you out with me? Are, are, are you in this relationship or not? And so this is Israel showing their stubbornness, showing their complaining. Um, and, and God is trying to say, now's the time to decide today because the end is near. The end is near. And so let's talk about urgency. I mean, the urgency that, that is I think prevalent all throughout this text is just boiling. And you can, tell, you can sense it more in the early, early verses um, that God is trying to get them to force a response. That you cannot walk out of here. You cannot hear what God has to say and be unchanged. And so verse 1, God says, in verse 1, God says, It is not I who have been missing. It's not I who have wandered. God says, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. Isn't that great? <laughs> I revealed myself to those who weren't even asking for me. Uh, I was found by those who did not seek me to a nation that did not call on my name. I said, here am I, here am I. And so I think from the very get-go, I want us to see the grace that the Lord is just putting out front for us to all see. If grace is unmerited favor, something that we didn't deserve, God's saying, I'm starting this out with, you're not even looking for me, and I'm coming to you. You don't even want me, and I'm spreading open my arms of salvation. And things are going to get pretty rough in these next couple of verses, and so I want you to hear how much God desires all to come to him and to be saved. They want nothing to do with God, and when you reject God... Even when you reject God, there's something that builds up inside of us that makes us feel spiritually superior to God. Now, Christians can feel spiritually superior to people, and that's a shame, and we don't want to see that. But what's ironic is when you reject God, and you then also feel spiritually superior even to God. Verse 5 tells us this. He's talking about those who say, keep away to God, Keep away, don't come near me, for I am too sacred for you. Another word for sacred there is holy. So the people are saying to God, keep away, I'm too holy for you. Mm. I'm too holy for you, God. Ooh. How does one find themselves in a position to believe that we are too holy for God, that we look down on God. How do you find yourself? And I think that it sounds absurd, but I think many of us are actually closer than we think to being in that position. Because I think what happens to be able to see yourself as holier than God, you have, I'm giving you two, two examples here. How do you see yourself as holier than God? One is you value your service to God more than your seeking of God. So you create the, all these systems of ways to serve God, to be of, of credit to, to God, 
And you value that far more than you actually value seeking and being with God. Another way of saying that is this. Your to-do list outweigh your to-be list. Your to-do list, the things you got to do, always outweigh your to-be list. Now, if I were to tell my family, I don't really enjoy being with you, but here's all the things I'm going to do for you. Well, that's going to be hard for them to hear, right? They're going to see themselves. They would think themselves as they're like my, my project. That I have to do these things. I actually don't want to spend time with you, but I, just, I, I, want to, I want to do my checklist of things that I have to do for you. Yes, I need to take care of you. Yes, I need to feed you. Yes, I need to make sure you get off to school, but I actually don't want to be with you. That would be terrible, right? That's not how it is in our, in our household. I actually want to be with my family. And for the most part, it doesn't really matter what we do. There's sometimes it'd be nice to know what we're doing. But for the most part, it's kind of irrelevant what we do. I just want to be with them, right? Whether we're playing basketball or video games or, I don't know, whatever it might be, right? I just want to be with them. It can change and it can adjust. And let me ask you this. Can you just be with God? I think for many of us, that almost feels like repulsive. Like, I can't just be with God. I want to do these things. I can't just sit. I got to do. That is a struggle for many of us. And when we get to that point where we're saying, I don't even want to sit alone and, alone and be with my thoughts with God. I just want to do these things. And then when I, when I see that God is, I'm actually looking at, at the world and going, you know what? I'm doing far more for the world than God is. That's how you get to the point where you're holier than God. And here's God's response to that. The end of verse 5, God says, Such people are smoke in my nostrils. Ooh. Can you just feel like the burning rage and anger, that imagery that God has right here? This is the urgency that is being pressed, that God is trying to say, no, this is not how we are having this relationship. Verse 11 goes on and emphasizes that urgency. But as for you who forsake the Lord and forget my holy mountain, who spread a table of for, for fortune, fortune is a, an idol or a fake God, and fill bowls of wine for destiny, another fake God, God says, I will destine you for the sword. Now, I don't know, if, did you catch the word play that God uses there? It's like, if you want to worship destiny, great. I will now destine you for the sword. I mean, God is not holding back. This is God saying, I'm not playing anymore. There is an urgency to, to the question here is, are you in or are you out? The offer of salvation is, is there. Let's emphasize that. The offer of salvation is, is open wide for everyone to take. The, the, the banquet feast is there. All you have to do is sit down at the table and eat. Like the, the train of salvation has arrived. You just got to grab the ticket. You just got to get on the train. And, and, and none of us can actually make that decision for you. You have to make the decision yourself. Now today we have some people who are making a decision to be baptized, to be following Jesus. And it's forever changing their lives. And it's a beautiful thing that we're all going to celebrate that they get to make that decision. But I want us to remind us that we all get to make that decision daily because daily we have to have that decision before us whether we're going to follow the Lord or not. Every single one of us. And so this is the urgency that the Lord is pressing. It's urgent because the end is near. 
And so now let's talk about the end. When we talk about the end, what we're really talking about is heaven. The second half of this chapter is all about heaven. And probably one question I get asked more often than any other question as a pastor is, what's heaven going to be like? And I love answering it. It's beautiful just to, to imagine the world of what heaven will be. And there's a myriad of things I could say if we were doing like a topical sermon, we could go into that. But let's just restrict our time to what heaven is from this passage. What does this passage tell us heaven is like? And verse 17, God says, See, I will create the new heavens and new earth. Now, I think that's actually a really good translation here. If you notice that, he doesn't say, I will create heaven. He says, I will create the new heavens, plural. And many times we like to think of heaven as this singular place that we all go off to. And you're going, heavens, plural? Does that mean like, I've got to be good enough to go to the, to the multiple, to the seventh round of heaven? That's not what it's talking about either. What is it talking about? It's talking about the heavens. It's a, it's a place. It's referring to this, this place where the sun and the moon and the stars are. It's, it's the vast area that is above the earth. That's what we're actually talking about here. The heavens is referring to that. And so you're like, okay, yeah, I've heard images of heaven being just in the clouds. Cool. This is my view of heaven. And I still don't think that's where we're talking about right now because it's not a distant place. It's not a singular place with mansions. Maybe this is the image you have of heaven. Uh, maybe that's what we think of when we think of heaven. It's this distant place with mansions that you throw a baby in there, maybe a harp. They got the, they got the wings and they're flying around. And that's what we think of when we think of heaven. I don't think that's the actual biblical view of heaven. I think that is what our culture has pushed us into believing heaven is. I think what it's talking about here, when God says, I'm going to create the new heavens and new earth, if it's a realm, he's creating new heavens and a new earth. Another way of emphasizing or translating that word create is a word recreate. So God could be saying, I will recreate the new heavens or renew the heavens and the earth. Now it's trying to, I think, change a little bit the translation and the understanding of this passage. God's going to recreate heavens and earth. And so you, maybe you might be asking the question, what's heaven going to be like? My answer to you is, it's going to be a lot like the world is now. Just better. <laughs> the way it was meant to be. Like, it's, instead of thinking heaven as going in in a giant demo day, destroying this earth and, and putting a new build out there, Let's stop, stop thinking of it as like a demo day, as more as like a rehab and, and rehabilitating this old house called earth. And God is going to rehab it and restore it to something beautiful. And you might say, that seems like too far of a stretch. I like my view of the sky heaven more. I get it. That might, be more, that might sound more uh, enjoyable, I guess. Um, but here's where I believe it's true. The word there for heavens there is the Hebrew word Shamaim. Everyone say that with me. Shamaim. Fun word. It's the, if you want to know where it's at, if you open up your uh, bulletins, it's the far left word there in Hebrew. Uh, Shamaim is there. And so this same word here for the new heavens, Shamaim, is the same word that's used in the very first verse in the Bible, Genesis 1.1, where God says, in the beginning, God created 
the heavens, shamayim, and the earth. And I believe there, God created that ex nihilo, meaning out of nothing. So God created the heavens and the earth, these realms. And then in Isaiah, now God is saying, I'm recreating. I'm renewing. I'm restoring the heavens and the earth. Ooh. Now, what does that do to our understanding of what God is saying? It means that heaven is going to be new, but recognizable. You will actually understand these things. It'll be somewhat normal, yet free of sin, free of evil, free of the brokenness of this world, free of the complexities, restored to what it was meant to be. And so what is it, what is it going to be like? Well, let's look here. Verse 19. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. And some of y'all have spent a week of weeping and crying. There's been some painful reality in your life, and you know that well. In the new heavens and the new earth, God says there is no more weeping. No more crying. And get this, not because you're going to be whisked away from this world into the clouds. It's because when God remakes this world, it's going to be actually just. And there will be nothing to weep about. It will be equitable. It will be shalom. It will be the way the world was meant to be. Isn't that, isn't that what we want? That's why there's no more weeping and no more crying. And then verse 21, they will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. It makes me think of the Micah 4.4 4 verse where it says, everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid for the Lord Almighty has spoken. And so what we learn about heaven is that everyone's going to work, which on one level just sounds so mundane. You're like, really? I thought we were going to get a break, <laughs> Right? We're going to get a break from that type of work. Because on the other level, our work, if we think of it in the way God intends it, it's actually a really beautiful thing. In heaven, we will build with our hands and we will live in normal houses, not these crystal, uh, you know, shimmering gold places, right? This is, we're going to plant gardens where our weeds will not kill them. Y'all, I'm, I'm not a great gardener. We, things die around our, our garden way too often. <laughs> but in the new heavens and new earth, these things will actually flourish. The tomatoes will ripen. They would all f flourish and, and blossom. And you might be like me, and you're like, I'm not a gardener either. <laughs> you're like, I don't really want a garden in heaven. That doesn't sound great. That's okay. It's they're writing to a people that this is their agricultural society. What the emphasis is, is that in the new heavens, the new earth, there will be work. That was their work. And that work will be good. So that the work that you did on Friday is not going to be undone on Monday because someone you left in charge ruined it all. Some of you are like, oh, Lord, please usher that in. For some of y'all who are, might be teachers or professors, as you teach your students, your students are going to go, oh, teach, teach me more. This is wonderful. This is life-changing, right? It's actually going to make an impact. Or maybe you're, 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 you, have, you find yourself in a, in a position where you have a boss that doesn't recognize your hard work. In the new heavens, the new earth, your boss is going to see your hard work and praise you for it and get everyone else, not steal credit, everyone else is going to now give you the credit for it and say, amazing. That's how it's going to be in the new heavens and new earth. 
that we will actually have work to do and it will be good. Don't we want that? Don't you want that type of, 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 of heaven? God cares about work. God also cares about economic justice. Verse 22 says, No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. What God is saying there is that you're not going to be taken advantage of. So for many of our people who are taken advantage of, who are in systems of oppression or systemically, society, you will not be taken advantage of the new heavens and the new earth. God cares about you. He cares about economic stability. And if you want to get real optimistic, what's, what's the new heavens and the new earth going to be like? Go to verse 25. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. I just, the image of a, a snake eating dust is one of those I'm like, hmm, <laughs> that's, that's a funny one. But some of y'all are also stuck on the lion eating grass, right? Eating straw like the ox, and it's maybe going, okay, what is God going to just magically change the digestive system of these animals who are built to eat protein? Yeah, okay. I don't know, maybe. <laughs> maybe that's what the Lord's going to do. I don't know if that's what this passage is emphasizing. It's Hebrew poetry. And so I think it's trying to make the point that in the new heavens, the new earth, there's going to be such shalom, such peace, that there's going to be no violence. I think that's the emphasis that, that the author is trying to press here. That the lack of violence in the new heavens and the new earth. And so what this, another way of saying this is that those who are most opposed to one another, in the end, you're going to have a restored relationship. And so, I mean, just imagine the person who loathes you the most in the new heavens and the new earth. They are going to be seeking you out in joy not passively avoiding you. In the new heavens and the new earth, the people that you are worried to see in this life, the people that you are frustrated by, you're going to share a bowl of cereal together. And it's going to be a delight. Like, and you're like, that can't happen. I, I would never share a bowl of cereal with them. Why don't eat cereal? Whatever it might be. Whatever it might be. Maybe eggs and bacon. Whatever it is. How? That's something God would do, wouldn't it? That God would take the most diametrically opposed people and put them together in this restored relationship. That is something God is going to do. Can you imagine it? And I, the hard part is, it sounds so good, it almost sounds too good to be true. And so then we all start asking the question, okay, when? When is God going to do this? And this is where we get to the last point here. And so the, we talked about urgency. We talked about end. But how near is it? The nearness. When is this going to happen? When is God going to do this? And I think the point of this chapter in all of Isaiah is that the end is closer than you think. In fact, it's right on your very doorstep. I mean, everyone, real quick, um, look down at your feet. When you look down at your feet, what do you see beneath them? You probably see um, some wood that is okay looking wood, <laughs> old. Uh, maybe you see some carpet and you're like, this is pretty good carpet. They must have cleaned it. We did. On Fridays, we clean this carpet. So we're doing pretty good. Now, 
When you think of heaven, you hear streets of gold, and you're like, but they cleaned their carpet. Clearly, this is not heaven. So just by looking down at the ground, you know this is not heaven. I think everyone can see that. But you don't have to even look at the ground. You can just say, just by the world we live in, I know it's not heaven because I know the pains and the hurts and, and the violence and the wars that are going on right now. I know this is not heaven. That, to me, seems to be most obvious. So when is God going to do this? This is where I want us to see that whenever in the book of Isaiah that God is writing, he's writing to people in this place and time and for the future. And so it's a message to the people right then and the future. And so this is a, this is a um, God saying it's a actively recreating new heavens and new earth I'm not whisking you off to Never Never Land with Peter Pan. What I'm trying to emphasize is that this heaven is happening right here, right now. It's not streets of gold and heaven I want to talk about. I want to talk about Waco Drive. I want to talk about Franklin Avenue being restored. Oh, I want to talk about I-35 being restored where there's no more construction. Oh, Lord, and no more potholes and all the construction in Waco. Come back, Lord, right? This is what God's talking about. It is the, it is the reconstruction. It is renewing the world we live in now. That's what it's going to be. God is saying this is an emphasis for a time right now, not just in heaven, now. Now, I think it's so easy for us to, to see the not yet of the kingdom, but it's really hard for us to see the now, that God is actually doing beautiful and wonderful works here and now. But this is, this is the tension we all live in. Like, how do I know that God is emphasizing it's both a not yet and a now? Well, this passage is all about heaven, right? And if we're talking about heaven, then what the heck is verse 20 doing in here? Verse 20 seems to upend all of our, our thoughts of what heaven should be like. Verse 20 says, Never again will there be an infant who lives but a few days. St stop there for a second. Amen. Hallelujah. In the new heavens, the new earth, praise God, there is no more miscarriages. There is no more infant mortality. But go on with that passage. Or an old man who does not live out his years, the one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. It almost sounds dissonant in this passage, like, wait a second. I mean, that's a good thing. I would love to live to 100. And that's what the, 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 the promise here is in, in this just society, that people will be able to live to 100. But is there death in heaven? No. There is not death in heaven at all. Death has gone away. It is no more. And so then what is this passage here for? This is what the theologians call the now and the not yet. That it is emphasizing something for now and not yet. And so there is a kingdom breaking in right now into this world, but it's also not fully here yet. Uh, another way of saying this is, where do you feel home? When you, when you leave this place, we'll probably go outside and have a baptism out there, and you get in your car and you drive home. When you park your car in your driveway, are you home or on the street? Some of you are like, yeah, I'm, I'm home. Uh, let's say you get out and you walk up to the front door and you're on, the, you're on the front porch. At that point, are you home? I feel like I would say, yeah, now I'm home. I'm home on the front porch. But do you feel home? 
probably don't feel like you're home yet. Where do you feel home? That's very personal. Some of y'all, you feel home on the couch. You're like, I'm not really home until I take my shoes off and I sit down and I'm like, now I'm home. Or maybe it's the kitchen table or maybe it's your recliner. Or maybe you take your Sunday afternoon nap. Where do you feel home? So you see the difference there when you're home versus what you feel home. I want us to see that heaven, that we are living on the front porch of heaven. We are living on the front porch of heaven. We are there. We are home, but we're not fully there. It doesn't feel like home yet. We're not actually all the way in it, but we are there. We are on the front porch of heaven. So when is this going to end? When is God going to do all this? It's now and not yet. And this is why Jesus makes the comment in his prayer, in Matthew 6, 10, may your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so the goal is the marriage between heaven and earth. That's, what we, that's, the, that's the goal for the kingdom here. And so what that means is that should change the whole rea- way we look at our view of heaven and also change the whole way we look at the world we live in now. So that now we're trying to say, how can heaven break into this world, into our communities, into our schools, into our work, into our neighborhoods? How, how can we see that in a different light? Because this is where heaven is supposed to break in, in a, in a time when there should be no more violence. There should be no more wars where our work should be good, where we can actually love our enemies now. Let's see that happen now. And so let me leave you with two things, a challenge and a comfort. And so the challenge for you this week, I believe this. I believe we are what we tolerate. You tolerate you know, hatred. You're, you're allowing for hatred to exist. You tolerate apathy. You're, you're kind of are apathetic. You tolerate what we, we, to, we are what we tolerate. And if, if we're just looking at our world and saying, this is fine, what do you look at, the, at in your life and you say, this is good enough? Maybe it's an unhealthy relationship. And you say, it, I mean, it's not great, but it's fine. But if heaven is supposed to break in, like, if we, if we actually saw that this is supposed to be where heaven is, we're going to say, this thing should have no place in heaven. Then why are we tolerating it? What are we tolerating? And so maybe it's an unhealthy relationship. Maybe it's a pet sin. Maybe it's how we treat the poor in our midst. And we just say, ah, they're always going to be here. What are we tolerating? And... I want us to challenge you to think about that and to rethink the way we look at these things. But also, let me give you a comfort. The comfort here is, I mean, how are we going to unite heaven to earth? By your efforts? By your strivings? Let me give you that verse again. See, I will create the new heavens and the new earth. God is saying, I'm going to do it. This is 100% all God doing the work. We don't have, he doesn't need our help, our assistance. Siri, I'm going to tell you, stop doing that to me. <laughs> he doesn't need our assistance, but he chooses to use us. God will create the new heavens and the new earth, but he's going to work through human beings. And so you can have rest in that. And the pinnacle of God working, and the pinnacle of my and hopefully your comfort here, is that God is working through Jesus 
immeasurably in his incarnation, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. That's how God, Siri, <laughs> that's how God is repairing and redeeming this world and uniting the brokenness together. God is not just trying to be about a personal relationship. God is trying to reconcile. Jesus is reconciling all things, all things to himself. Those relationships as well as your relationship with your heavenly father. Jesus makes us right with him and makes and starts to reweave the fabric with one another. This is the beauty of God working in this world. This is our comfort that he's reweaving the fabric for us. And so the end is near. And if we believe that the way we see it here now, that the end is near, it should give us a whole new meaning for looking at the end times and the end of the world. The end is right now, but not in the way that some of the doomsday prophesiers believe. The end is now. I want to ask you, what possibilities can you imagine? If we are living in what God is going to restore and create and recreate, what can we imagine with God? How can we be co-creators with God in this world? What are we stifling with our, what we're tolerating? What are we just allowing to exist the way it is because we're like, eh, it's just the status quo. Let's not settle for that. The urgency is now. The end is near. The opportunity is today. And so let's do the opposite of Israel, who felt superior to God and said, I don't even want to be with you. Let's come humbly to the Lord. And let's just desire to be with him this week, just to spend time with God. And as we spend that valuable time, God would push us to see and to give us eyes to see how we can co-create with him. Let me pray for us.